the Comfort Monk Podcast. So for today's episode, I had the uh, amazing Chuck Johnson, guitar player extraordinaire, pedal steel player extraordinaire. Chuck Johnson and I had a great time talking. You know, uh, he actually spent a lot of time in the southeast. Uh, he cut his teeth in the Chapel Hill area. Uh, you know, playing music back there. So we kind of had some, some regional, some regional background, uh, in common. And, uh, he just kind of, we, we talked a whole bunch about, you know, how his kind of career has gone. And, you know, if, if you're a fan of Chuck Johnson, you know, it's hard to describe Chuck Johnson to anybody because he's had so many kind of different periods in his life. Um, from playing, you know, Appalachian influence finger fingerstyle guitar to you know doing more kind of long long composed uh ambient pieces and stuff like that and uh he kind of traced the lineage of how he went from, you know, playing bar chords on an old amp uh to composing soundtracks on a lap steel guitar. It's pretty cool. It's a very Nice. Very interesting, dude. Well, man, I'm uh, once again appreciate the the new music you brought into my life with this guy, and and what I've heard, I really enjoyed, and yeah, I'm excited to hear what you guys had to chat about, just because he's like his he's a bit of a mystery to me, and I'm I'm really it, his music doesn't give you doesn't let a whole lot out of the bag as far as like what's this guy's deal, you know? So. Uh, I'm I'm ready to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, I, I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, well, here's Eddie's interview with Chuck Johnson. Enjoy. I think of myself as a composer and a musician and uh, yeah, I mean, guitar is the instrument I've played for the longest and um, probably the instrument I've had the deepest connection to, but uh, you know, not, it's not a, an instrument that I've really kind of put in the foreground with my music the last few years. So I've, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I think composer musician is sort of like what I, Mostly, I run with that these days. Have you been playing guitar pretty much your whole life? Actually, I mean, I, I picked it up relatively late. I picked it up in uh, when I was in college, and I had when I was a kid. I took piano lessons for a few years and kind of came in and out of that. Um, and then, uh, but you know, never never got too serious about it. <clears throat> and then in college, you know, I had access to a a guitar, electric guitar and an amp, and I just started banging on it and um, slowly figured out how to do what I wanted to do on it. But in terms of, you know, like it's, it's, uh, it's best, that was a long time ago now, but it's, um, it's kind of late in the game 
I think, by most people's standards to pick up any instrument. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of true, I think, uh, with sort of like a, you know, there's sort of like a, I don't know, a cultural understanding of like this like child prodigy thing of like kids, you know, at the age of four starting to learn violin and stuff. But I right. am, you know, do, doing this, I'm obviously not a, you know, professional journalist or anything. And all the musicians I've talked to, I'm kind of surprised that I hear that all the time that, uh, you know, they, uh-huh. they started playing like later in life. Um, then I think maybe just the average person that owns a guitar does or drums or whatever else. Um, so maybe there's something about like growing up with music, but not playing it at the same time that kind of give, lets you like develop a, I don't know, a sense of like aesthetics or kind of like what, what you're looking for in, you know, your own music. I could be way off on that. I don't know what you yeah. listened to growing up or anything, but. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think that coming to the guitar when I did meant that my, just at, at that time in my life, it, it meant that it, my priority was to do, was to do my own thing with it rather than trying to learn a lot of other people's music. Um, so, I, you know, like it could, it could have been very different if I started playing when I was eight and, you know. Yeah, and just you learned know, a bunch of Beatles songs gone. and stuff. Yeah, which is funny because I really liked the Beatles when I was a kid. <laughs> That's probably exactly what I, I would have probably learned the Beatles catalog. And then, uh, who knows, gotten into jazz or something. You know, who knows what, where, where, wherever they send, you know, like, I guess the, if you're a young guitar player, you're going to, a teacher is going to nudge you towards classical or jazz ultimately. Um, so I'm kind of grateful that I didn't have that pressure when I was a kid. Yeah. I, I was thinking about something similar recently. Uh, Cause you know, Eddie Van Halen just passed and I, I briefly yeah. took guitar instruction when I was in like middle school and uh, mm-hmm. my teacher was just like, okay, your goal in life is to learn how to play like Eddie Van Halen, which is kind of funny. This, this was <laughs> yeah. in the, you know, yeah. the early two thousands, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. So it so, reminds me of a, it. <laughs> sorry, what were you saying? Oh, I was, I was just going to say that reminds me of a, I have a friend who's, uh, name is Joe Ventura and he's, he's a funny, he writes funny stuff. And, uh, in the nineties, he had this idea for a movie called the flying V. And the idea was that the fly, like the, he's from New Jersey and Joe would play the flying V. Flying V is a guitar teacher who, who was like in, you know, in his he's middle age and he's living in his parents' basement and he teaches guitar lessons, but all he knows how to do is really play the main riff from any song. <laughs> so that's kind of like, that's the whole bit is that he's, he can show like he can show that much to any student, and when they want to know more, he'll be like, "What about this song?" You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just constantly riffing. Yeah. So you, I, I mean, so I guess uh, what that kind of boils down to is you, uh, when you started, you know, playing guitar, you viewed it as a compositional tool, um, as opposed to something to emulate with. Um, which I guess really makes sense uh, because you've used guitars in so many different ways um, in your career. Um, I, you know, I, 
different kinds of guitars, different kind styles of playing, you know, influences, stuff like that. Um, so you're in college, you start, start banging on a guitar, an amp, as you said. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that, uh, you had, you know, several bands, uh, back in the day. Did those start around college or were those Uh, later? My first band started, started shortly after I finished college and it was, it, it was a duo called Spatula with a friend, friend of mine who was actually a friend of mine during college. So you could say it kind of came out of that time. Um, and uh, what what kind of music were you writing at that point? Um, it was it was it was I mean it was rock music, but it was kind of um, not very conventional rock music. And I mean, I, you know, I think after the fact, it sort of just might be described as post-rock because um, it's that's sort of the time that that that, that it took place in. Mm-hmm. But it was, and I think also maybe maybe because it was largely instrumental, and that you know we played songs that were had had these kind of like long structures and um, a lot of a lot of the music was slow, had slow tempos, and um, was pretty moody, I guess. Um, but it was, you know, we were definitely kind of reflecting back a lot of what we were listening to and what we were, what was happening at the time in the early '90s. Um, especially music that was coming out of, I mean, we, we, this was happening in Chapel Hill, which of course had a, this whole universe of independent music happening. Um, we were also like really leaning in towards what we were hearing out of like Chicago and Louisville and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ch- Chapel Hill is a great, uh, music town. Um, and I, I imagine that, uh, you know, some of the other scenes around, uh, you know, this area were probably influencing you too. Um, you know, like Athens and stuff like that. So what was kind of, you know, the, mm-hmm. the defining, you know, say versus in Athens or a Chicago or Louisville or something, what was kind of, or, or at least your impression of the, the Chapel Hill thing that was going on in the early nineties? Um, well, it's just like, it's the music that my friends are making that a lot of which happens to be the music that a lot of other people around the world heard. Um, but like, you know, like just like bands like Paul though and super chunk and archers of loaf and things like that from definitely from that world. And those are bands that I think a lot of people are familiar with. And then there's, but then there was this, all this other stuff that um, that no one really ever heard outside of people who were there, living there at the time. And um, so I think people think of, I guess, the sound of the Chapel Hill music at the time as being defined by that kind of angular guitar, indie rock. But, but there was also, I mean, there was just like a lot of music that had um, like surf kind of inspiration and influence and um, just like like more esoteric sounds that didn't quite um, just didn't for whatever reason didn't become part of uh, the indie rock milieu at the time mm-hmm. so I think it was just being as being like <clears throat> I mean pretty diverse as far as like diverse 
as far as rock music performed by mostly people from a certain demographic, you know, it can be diverse, <laughs> but like stylistically it, it was, it was kind of all over the place. Um, and, um, so this is really like fertile grounds and just like surprisingly so for such a small place. Yeah, that's cool. So I imagine you were probably going to a lot of shows and stuff like that and hearing a lot of new stuff. Yeah. Um, did you go to school in Chapel Hill? Did you go to yeah, UNC? Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Yeah, I grew up in Raleigh and then went nice. uh, 30 minutes down the road to Chapel Hill to go to college. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I grew up in Aiken, South Carolina and went to USC and Columbia, so <laughs> it's probably about the same, okay, amount cool. of, same amount of distance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Uh, you're in some, some early nineties, uh, indie rock bands and stuff. Uh, what kind of point did you start getting into some of the more, I don't know if if you would use the word Appalachian, but some of the more kind of like Southern, Mm. but specific to our area. Um, you know, the, the kind of, you know, I, I, I think you can pinpoint a, a period where you started using like fingerstyle and stuff on records, but when, when was kind of like, when were those influences starting to creep in and who were they? Um, well, I, I, I grew up around a lot of country music. Um, mm-hmm. and like, that's just what my, my parents listened to a lot of the time. I mean, like watching Hee Haw, stuff like that. I mean, that, that era of country music, I feel like is pretty, um, it's just in my DNA because it was around me so much. Mm-hmm. And certainly like ex- family gatherings, my extended family all lived, you know, within an, an hour drive there in North Carolina. And my uh, step-grandfather, who basically the, who I grew up thinking of him as, of as my grandfather, my grandmother's hu- second husband had a guitar around and he would, um, he could do like that sort of, um, he called it Travis picking, like finger picking style that, um, people who, uh, like would identify more as country mu- music people <laughs> mm-hmm. would, um, that's how they would describe it. But I think of it more as like, um, kind of ragtime and Piedmont blues really is where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was just like, you know, I didn't learn how to do it when I was a kid, but I heard it a lot. And then, um, yeah, I mean, by the time I was in college, I was aware of Elizabeth Cotton, of course, because I was in Chapel Hill and Mm -hmm. I would, I I had a radio show at at the university radio station there and, was able to just kind of like trace things by pulling records out of the stacks, you know, Elizabeth Cotton and just eventually realized the connection that went from her to John Fahey. Um, and, you know, the, so those were early kind of like examples of, of that sort of music that really clicked with me, I guess. That's cool. So I started, I guess I started really playing it like, um, you know, shortly after I, I, I was involved in like the rock bands. So 
sometime in the mid nineties, late nineties. But, um, and, and would, and would do solo performances playing that kind of music. And I was, you know, I was writing my own tunes and learning some traditional tunes and learning John Fahey, of course, um, because that's a good way to learn how to play that music mm-hmm. or in that style. And, uh, but just didn't, it never felt like, um, appropriate to try to put it out there for the world to hear <laughs> for many years later until, yeah, many years later, I guess, uh, almost 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. You, you had time to kind of incubate it some and yeah. feel out your own version of it. Uh, side question. Uh, what was the name of your radio show at Chapel Hill? Uh, well, this is this is uh, WXYC is is the station, and um, most of the most of the shows don't have names. Gotcha. Um, there are co- there are a couple of specialty shows that do you know that feature new music or local music and things like that. But um, and I think that's still the case there. Mm-hmm. But, so yeah, I didn't have a name for my show. Cool. Did it you was, know it was the graveyard shift when I started? Oh yeah, you have the. Saturday night, midnight to four kind of thing. <laughs> like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., yeah. Yeah. Uh, did, did you know somebody uh, named uh, Jane Witten? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That, that is my wife's aunt. Uh, I know she's been a, a DJ there for a long time. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. That's probably when I first world. met her was when I was, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's crazy. My, uh, yeah, I'll I'll tell her that I I talked to you today. I'm sure she'll appreciate that. I think I saw Jane. I think came to a show. What you know, I I come to Chapel Hill fairly regularly touring, and I she came out to a show a couple of years ago. So, um, uh, it's cool to see that she's still so into music and supporting it like that. Awesome. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's just such a small world, especially when you're in the South. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so you're sort of incubating uh, for a while what would kind of become one of your hallmarks, I would say, of uh, the last decade. <clears throat> Maybe we could talk about a struggle, not a thought. It's It's, it's like the first of the first, the really the first album I put out under my own name, and um, the first in, a, in what ended up being sort of a trip triptych of like acoustic guitar albums, mm-hmm. um, and it was I recorded it here in Oakland, and I I had been living here for when I started recording it, I I had basically just finished um, like a two year. MFA program at Mills College here where I was deeply involved in like electronic music and like interactive composition and stuff. And um, I don't know, maybe if it was a unconscious response to being so deep into that for a couple of years, but I just was really, um, I just felt really compelled to pick up the guitar again. And I, you know, I was in this music program, but, playing guitar wasn't part of the work I was doing at all. Um, and uh, I started recording probably 2009, 
And, um, yeah, it's probably two or three sessions over the course of a year that ended up making it on the album. That's um, awesome. I, I, I know you do a lot yeah. of, uh, a lot of recording on your own. Was that, did you do that like through a label and in a recording studio or was that like a, a home recording sort of thing? It was recorded actually in a really nice studio at, um, there's a, there's a school here in Emeryville called, uh, Expression College. And now it's, it's part of this network of schools called SAE. And it's like a, um, like a recording. I mean, the main program that they're known for is like teaching recording and audio production. So they had these, oh, these cool. really amazing studios. And I had a friend who was working there at the time. Who, and um, if you work there, you have access to the studios, which is really nice. So he recorded me in this really, like, this really amazing sounding room. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a beautiful, expansive record. I didn't, I didn't mean to ask, like, is it home recorded because it's lo-fi? Because it's anything but that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I have definitely, I, I do record my own stuff and, and I did record some of the later guitar music, but, um, that one was, yeah, I was fortunate to have my friend Norman Peel, who also known as the Norman conquest, who's, who's recorded a lot of great stuff over the years. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. Did, did y'all ever uh, play together on anything? No, he's, I've, I've, I've recorded stuff for his own, work uh he did this he did this concept record that involved ten thousand tracks um so our trade-off for him recording this album was i i came into the studio several times to record um so i would i would record tracks for his like his project um but we've never done anything like direct direct collaboration he does really cool synthesizer based music um Mm-hmm. And he's done like, like that, that, that project was very conceptual and like, I mean, the end result was incredible, but he, he literally recorded 10,000 tracks. That's wild. To make that album. I, yeah. I, I always love that kind of thing. Like pushing the boundaries of like recorded music. Um, I was, I was talking about somebody on the show recently about um, Glenn Bronca and how he would do recordings with like, I don't know, like a hundred saxophones playing the same part over and over on each top of each other. And it just sounded like all of the, all of the harmonics and stuff that, that get formed when you squash all that stuff together is crazy. Um, yeah, that's cool. Was it, uh, were you, did you play guitar on that or were you recording like, uh, uh synthesizer or something? No, he, I, I, I played guitar. Yeah. I played guitar for the most part. Um, a lot of times it would just be like, here, play this five note, you know, section right here. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, when I was recording, I had no idea how it was going to fit into the, the larger picture, but, um, <laughs> we had a, yeah, we did a listening, um, party over a big sound system and it was just like, it sounded so huge, mm-hmm. but it was like, something like 150 different performers. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people were doing what I did where we just came in and did like last, 
you know, lots of individual takes, but all just became part of this massive piece. Yeah, that's awesome. It's kind of cool because like nobody except for like nobody that's working on it can really see the whole, and then y'all all got to to see the whole at the same time. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was. It ended up being called Myriad. I think was the title um, of the, the overall like album concept type thing. But yeah, there were ten thousand tracks. It that's was cool. an incredible, incredibly dense wall sound. And what a what a I mean, just like an undertaking for him to mix and edit all that. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. So, so you're you're out of your MFA at this point. Um, what was kind of your career like at that point? Were you were you at a point where you were going out and playing a lot and stuff, um, or were you you know more of doing the recording and session work kind of stuff? I mean, I I didn't tour much. Between, I would say, the last band I was involved with in North Carolina called Shark Quest. We did a little bit of touring, not much. Then I was, you know, like I would do a lot of shows in just locally in North Carolina. And then um, once I moved out here, really not much touring happened for a good span of a number of years um, until I started put, putting out the guitar records. And, you know, like I was doing solo shows that I would just, you know, organize for myself locally. But without, you know, like I, I didn't release a lot of music during that time either. So I, I think the last Shark Quest record was 2004, maybe, and or 2006, something like that. Maybe, no, or like 2004 and then... Struggle Not, I thought it was 2011. Um, so I think, you know, you could look at that, that, that span of years and wonder, like, what, what was I doing? <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> well, you were I was just like, uh, yeah, I was, I was pursuing new stuff that I was interested in, a lot of which led to me, you know, wanting to go to grad school and, immerse myself in it uh, for a couple of years with, you know, with some guidance and um, that just like releasing records and touring wasn't a priority during that time. And tour, like touring without having records uh, isn't really feasible. So I was, you know, I was happy to, to not, to not worry about that stuff for a few years. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. So when a struggle, not a thought came out, uh, were you were you in a position to like play that record? Um, you know, because it it sounds like you know solo guitar at a lot of points, but I imagine that you know with all the layering and stuff, it's probably pretty hard to do live. Did you have a band or something, or a, a partner or something to help you do that? But on that record, it's all it's all solo. So all the recordings are just single, you know, just a single track of guitar. There's no overdubs or anything. Chuck, that's um, mind blowing. Honestly, <laughs> but, I mean, that's I, I mean, that just really speaks to your skill, obviously. But <laughs> well, 
Thank you. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's one thing that drew, drew me to playing uh, like fingerstyle guitar is that you can, you can kind of like get the sort of orchestral or, or pianistic sound out of the guitar. Um, and I've always been interested in, in finding ways to play that instrument where you can move, you can play bass lines and kind of play them against chords or melodies that are like in the higher register doing all, all that at the same time as possible when you're, playing with your fingers um and and the acoustic guitar is just such a resonant instrument and it's harmonically very rich so if you really get it going like if you really excite the instrument harmonically then it can it just i think it's it's, it's a lot like why i you know like it, it, it's very related to what i like about electronic music you know which is working with harmonics and overtones um and the acoustic guitar is great for that but yeah i think that whole album i was pretty much able to play that i, I did i did do a little touring after it came out um I, it just came out to the east coast for a couple of weeks um soon after it was released and what? yeah yeah i was gonna say what was kind of the reception for that uh what was that like because, you know, I, I I get the feeling with, you know, a lot of, you know, instrumental music and stuff like that, um, it, everything seems like kind of a slow burn, maybe, where... Yeah. Like, I feel like that's an album that in 2020, everybody is like, that's amazing, but I imagine it's hard to, to release a, a instrumental record and then go out and tour for it. Um I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm yeah, just kind of talking out loud. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's interesting. Like this, this style of solo guitar is something that kind of is always bubbling up to the surface every few years and has a little resurgence in popularity or, or interest, at least in terms of as far as things go and kind of like underground music circles. And in the, in the early 2000s, um, Jack Rose had really popularized it and he and Glenn Jones were doing like releasing records and doing a lot of touring. And um, so it was sort of on, it was on people's radar, I would say. Um, and I, that, that record of Circle Not I Thought was released by a label um, that was known for that kind of music and had, had released some Glenn Jones records and, um, they released a DVD of Glenn Jones and Jack Rose, like, um, in studio and live stuff. That was really mm -hmm. cool. But the label is called Strange Attractors Audio House, and they're sadly no longer active, but, um, they were really instrumental in that kind of early 2000s. Um, just sort of like popularizing so and, uh, carrying the torch for the solo guitar yeah so so you were you were kind of graced with uh them kind of having some connections to you know at least some sort of input on fans of that style of music or something they could they could probably help you out uh yeah and i think they're through. like people followed that late people who followed that label would be inclined to want to hear that sort of music and be interested mm -hmm. in it so that definitely 
That yeah. definitely helped. Yeah, that's really cool. So you you mentioned that this this record was sort of part of a, like a triptych of guitar based records. I'm assuming you mean uh, the next two, um, the uh, Crows and uh, Blood Moon Boulder. Is that would yeah, you consider those exactly. a trilogy? Okay, cool. I was just making sure I'm not yeah misinterpreting. Yeah, the triptych I guess would it, would it not something I conceive. Like I started out thinking I'm going to do three solo guitar records, and later I'll call it a solo guitar triptych. It's just like in hindsight, that's just sort of how it worked out. It, was there kind of, you know, looking back on that, did that kind of sum up a, a portion of your life in the 20 teens? Like the, those three records, you know, being, you know, kind of stylistically uh, similar and speaking to each other. Um, was there, you know, something going on with you? Uh, you know, where you were at as a person or geographically or anything that kind of ties those records together for you? Yeah, I mean, I a North Carolinian, displaced North Carolinian, you know, <laughs> living in California. And um, slowly, over, it was during that decade that I realized that I kind of came to see this is my home. Um, but starting at, at the beginning of that decade, you know, um, after I'd only lived here for a couple of years, I was still really not sure. It felt, it still felt pretty alien here. Um, and it, cause you know, really this, this, this United States should be multiple countries and <laughs> this is definitely a different country than the one I came from. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I think that that period of time, part of what was happening was me just um, kind of opening up to this place and uh, assimilating myself into it. And, you know, like just the, the openness, the geographical and just visual openness of this place, um, I think is reflected in the music, but so is obviously the place I, I had come from. So. Yeah, that's really cool. That, that makes a lot of sense. Sense it's kind of a synthesis between, you know, your, you know, where you grew up and where you're at now, and yeah, I mean that's you know being from South Carolina, it it's kind of incredible when you go to a place like Texas or California or something, like, yeah, I most of my life there's never been a time where I could see more than like a quarter or a half mile away from where I was at. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, right. There's trees everywhere. There's hills and mountains and stuff everywhere. So yeah, I I bet it was pretty awe inspiring, especially if if you're a surfer. I don't know if you were surfing at the time, but it, any sort of like you know connection to to nature uh, can be you know yeah. awe inspiring when you have those those kind of spaces. Um, yeah. And I mean a a I mean a tightly packed uh, mountain trail in North Carolina is also awe inspiring in a different way, but you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the North Carolina mountains are incredibly beautiful and, um, so are other parts of the state, but it's just, um, it was, I mean, it was all, the, this is all the stuff that just felt so alien to me when I, when I first moved here, like, 
I, I gradually became, it gradually became the stuff that kept me here in, in a lot of ways, like just the ability to drive 10 or 15 minutes out of Oakland and be in among redwood trees. Um, so I could drive half an hour, 45 minutes and be at the Pacific ocean. Um, you know, and drive a couple hours and be in the desert or, you know, it's just, um, yeah, it's just, it's hard to put in the words, but it's now I, now I get it. Why people <laughs> end up here and stay here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. So you, you said you weren't really releasing a whole lot of music at this point. Uh, and then you released three, you know, pretty dense full length records and were there probably four or five years between those, those three. Um, mm-hmm. so like what, what was your, you know, from like a work standpoint, like what, what was your, you know, especially after the first one, when you had kind of established that as what you were doing for the time being, uh, yeah. you know, are you, are you a fastidious, uh, you know, are you a practicer? Are you constantly writing stuff or are you writing one song and spending a month on perfecting it? You know, kind of what, what's your, uh, you know, what's your approach to the actual like composition of it? Well, so, um, 2009, I finished school and was uh, released out into the world during a terrible time for someone who was looking for a job. Yeah. Um, so I, I was, I was extremely underemployed and really, I mean, fortunately I was living in a, like a warehouse space that was really cheap at the time. And, um, that's, I mean, that's how I was able to stay here in this area. I had, I had that going for me for a few years, but, um, so I, anyway, I had a lot of time in my hands and when I was composing the music for struggle and I thought I was, I was practicing maybe six hours a day and, you know, practicing and composing kind of like being part of the same practice. Um, cause it's when I'm composing that guitar music. There's a lot of repetition involved with, um, just honing the parts, both mm-hmm. from a compositional and from a, te- a technical perspective. Um, so that just that just became how I approached guitar music. Um, after that was, um, in order to, to to write the music I was happy with, and then also to technically be able to play it. Not not having been, you know, not like being far from like a virtuosic guitar player. Like I, re- I really had to. I really had to practice all the time to be able to um, keep, keep those songs in, you know, like kind of in my hands for performing um, and, and to write new music. So I would, that, that whole span of like four to five years, I was playing all the time, um, like every day. Absolutely. That, I mean, that's a crazy work ethic. Uh, and it, it's super interesting to me. So basically you were making sure that like your hands and your technical skills could keep up with the music that you wanted to make, uh, which seems like a really uh, practical way to stay motivated. Uh, You know, you were writing hard to play music, so you had to be able to play hard to play music, (laughs) you know, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, hard to play for me might not be for someone else, but um, yeah, it's just, that's just how that music was able to work for me. 
Yeah, that's cool. No, I imagine most people would be uh, psyched to be able to strum along some chords along with uh, those records, <laughs> let alone play the play the notes. Um, was was there ever like a you know in in that that part of like your your practice and composition and stuff like that? Um, was there ever any kind of like uh, you know I, I know I know you've worked on a lot of uh, soundtracks. And you were in, you know, some bands that you described as post-rock, which often gets, you know, kind of compared to like movie soundtracks and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Was that was that sort of like a, a goal of, of your your practice in writing to kind of be involved in those sort of things, or was that like a, a side, a, you know, a side benefit of where your music took you naturally? I think prob- probably the latter. Um, like, it's, it's ever since I started playing music, I, I was aware of the fact that there are people who get paid to compose music for films, and I thought, well, that would be an amazing dream job to have. Um, but I don't. I wasn't making music with that goal in mind. I mean, I'm just I'm just really fortunate that that ended up becoming my job. Um, but and that's something that developed over like many years. Um, you know, it took a long time for it to be something that I could let, make a living off of. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just, because I've always been more inclined to make instrumental music. Um, and I don't just the, the kind of musical voice I, I developed over the years. It just, just happens to be something that, people hear and will say, you know, that sounds like soundtrack music and never, never knew exactly how to take that. Like I think usually people mean it as a compliment, but um, now that I compose soundtrack music, I, <laughs> like I, soundtrack music is really, it's, it, it's meant to, a lot of times it really has to stay out of the way and not be background so much, but like to be like functional. And I, I never thought of, um, the music I was composing, you know, that I was releasing on records as being functional or having that kind of intention, at least not until Balsams that did have a little bit of that kind of intention behind it, but not until then. Yeah. I, you know, cause I, I always wonder, you know, it's, it's easy to see somebody's motivation for like getting up on stage and shredding a guitar because they saw you know, some rock star in the seventies doing it, but I just, it's, it's always mm-hmm. interesting to me, people that are involved in, uh, you know, especially like the film industry and stuff, sort of how they got there. And it seems like a lot of people, you know, have a similar story to you where it's kind of like what they were doing naturally fit. And, uh, they were able to, right. you know, kind of make a, make a career out of it. Um, and, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, Balsam's, and I, I was thinking about I was thinking about that record today. I listened to it while I was working, um, and you're you're saying you, you don't really compose music to be functional. And just like as a personal thing, I've always kind of hated music that was meant to help you study or work or something, because I always felt like it was kind of like yeah. oh everything's commodified, everything just serves you know consumerism and capitalism and stuff like that. And so I, I never liked 
Right. I never, I never liked that that concept of like, oh, this is music that helps you focus so you can make your boss more money or whatever, you know. But right. uh, I, I think Balsam's is functional in a different way, and that it has like sort of a, you know, this is hard to put into words, obviously, because it's such a you know subjective thing. But it's kind of like, a, like an emotional power that's sort of like uplifting and sort of like energizing but on a thinking wavelength, like not in a like, oh, this music gets me in the zone so I can pack a bunch of trucks for UPS or whatever. Uh, but <laughs> it, right. it, it does yeah. carry, it does carry like sort of like a creative weight to it. Um, that's, you know, energizing yeah. and kind of, uh, I hate to use the word mind expanding, but that, that's kind of the effect on it. Um, I mean, stylistically, I don't think, people would use the word psychedelic, but I, I think, you know, musically it has like a, a little psychedelic effect to it. Um, well, that's good. That's, I mean, I, I, that's very good to hear. Is, is that part of the function when you were, when you were looking for something a little bit functional on that record, what, what was the function you were hoping for? Well, it was actually at the, at the time I was recording it, uh, Bubbles the Dog, who you heard earlier, what had had suffered a spinal injury oh, no. and um she's she's a doc she's a dachshund and it's kind of common um unfortunately in that breed but um so she was confined to a crate and we were you know we were just trying to keep her calm and still and and not too miserable having to be in a crate 24 7 so that we could avoid there having to be a surgery mm-hmm. and um and during that, when I was when I was recording the basic tracks for that record, I was alone in the house. My partner was at an arts residency, so I was here. I was Bubbles' primary caretaker, but I also had, you know, like I, it was I, it was just this time that I'd set aside to start working on this album, and um, it just I found that what I was doing seemed seemed to help at least it wasn't making her more anxious <laughs> and like as i record because she she can hear music that happens in the house and she's very tuned into it all the time so i wanted to make sure that it was something that was kind of helped her stay calm you know so that's when i say there was an intention behind it it's not so much about what i hope that the listener who had who on the other end of this process how they experience it you know and i i hear all kinds of different things about that record which which has been really amazing over the years, but um, in terms of how people receive it, but at the at the time that was the that was sort of like the way in which it was functional or had had an intention. That is super cool. I, it makes me think about uh, Brian Eno's music for airports. It's kind of like uh, oh yeah, music to calm dogs too. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, animals are yeah, so she, sensitive. She recovered. Yeah. Like our yeah I, bubbles recovered. Sorry, uh, bubbles recovered. It's okay. And is doing well. She did. Yeah, she did. So people sometimes when they hear this story want to make sure that she turned out okay. But yeah, she's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our our dog. We've never had a dishwasher until now. And one of our dogs absolutely is terrified by it and will get to the furthest point in the house away from it. And it makes me so sad. And I'm like, it makes me not want to do the dishes. 
just because it's, it's so it's so upsetting. So a lot of times what I do is I, I uh, put her I put her in our our bedroom and I like put a pillow on the ground for her, like a, a nice comfortable human pillow, and shut the door. And I'm like, hopefully, hopefully she's en- away enough from the the vibrations and noises of this thing. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Like, yeah, Bubbles is uh kind of like we we've come to think of her as like a producer. <laughs> because she's very opinionated about music and if there's something on that she doesn't like she barks kind of like <laughs> she was just now um, so she tends to really prefer ambient music and um, so that's always playing in the background in the house like something that keeps bubbles chill <laughs> mm-hmm. for sure but my, my partner had this my partner had this band called Day Palms and they would rehearse in the living room of this house and um, Bubbles would sit in the middle of the room and they would all sit kind of, four of them would sort of sit uh, in a circle, I guess five of them at times. And if someone kind of like just got slightly out of the pocket and they're very, they're a very mellow band. Like their music is very, um, very spacious and beautiful and, but if someone was stepping out a little bit too much, Bubbles would actually walk up to them and bark. Um, <laughs> like if the, if the guitarist tried to get a little fancy, or you know, if the bass player got slightly out of you know out of the pocket. So she's definitely our our producer, our in house producer. That's awesome. So uh, <clears throat> so Balsams is also sort of I maybe. What was the name of the record before that? Uh, Velvet, Velvet Arc, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just making sure I don't say anything stupid here. So, so maybe you could say Velvet Arc was a turning point, but um, I think Balsams is probably instrumentally, in terms of like the instrumentation on it, uh, probably your first huge change from that that trilogy of records. Uh, yeah. You know the newly transplanted uh trilogy of acoustic guitar records um Mm -hmm. so did you this might just be like a a surface level question that doesn't have any (laughs) any deeper meaning to it did you uh buy like a a lap steel or a pedal steel around that time that got you you know interested in doing that kind of stuff um yeah pedal steel um, I got a few years before Balsams, but um, I think a, the first record. I think it, there's there's a little bit on Blood Moon Boulder. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's an instrument that I wanted to play and use in my music for a long time, and um, finally just decided. Some I don't remember exactly when. I guess it would have been around the time Crows came out when the Basilica came out, but mm-hmm. uh, I, found, I found one for sale locally and began the extremely humbling process of trying to play it, learn, learn how to play it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's definitely only a guitar in name, I would say. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's, not, it's so different. Like, it, yeah. I, I can imagine uh, with the, with a couple of exceptions of 
pedal steel players who seem like they're just playing a pedal steel like they would play their guitar. Uh, it definitely mm-hmm. is like a whole different like approach to to playing music and stuff like that. So I'm at, I, you know, I'm yeah. not surprised that that was kind of like a, oh man, I got to start from scratch again <laughs> to do this. Yeah. Yeah, it was humbling, um, and it kind of it meant kind of going back to that practicing every day for hours uh, sort of approach. Um, and it, it, yeah, it just sort of crept into the music starting with Bloodman Boulder. Then there was a little bit more of it on Velvet Ark. And it was also very, it was, it was, it was starting to factor into um, soundtrack work I was doing. It was like, it's a very useful instrument to have for that. Mm-hmm. Because that, that you, you so, can, um, I was just going to say, uh, I imagine for soundtrack work, it's good because you can play it without having any like attack. Like you could swell yeah, exactly. it in you could do without any mm-hmm. transients or anything. Right. So it has this immediate, not only like emotional resonance, but just it has like, it's like, it can operate like, like strings in a way, like, you know, like uh, classical strings that it's more of a, um, a very soft attack and like a long sustain. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to overuse, especially with when I'm scoring a film or a TV show, because it is people have such strong associations with it, or like it has, it just has a certain emotional sort of signature almost to it. Just as soon as you hear the instrument, no matter what you're playing. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it has yeah. A, like a human vocal quality to it that I think our yeah. brains probably, whether you rationally know it's not a person singing or not our brains probably are still wired to kind of respond to it as though there's a human being somewhere, you know, yeah, making that noise. Uh, so you, you had started doing your, uh, soundtrack work maybe around blood moon boulder. Is that, is that right? Uh, no, I've been doing it for a few years. Actually, I I started doing it when I still live in North Carolina. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. Working with a film, a film, a filmmaker based in Durham and Cynthia Hill, who I still work with. She's kind of, I mean, we, we had sort of a creative partnership going on for like 15 years now. Um, and she's just, her, her, like her work has developed and expanded and she gets more and more opportunities now. And, um, and unfortunately I'm, I'm, I'm the composer who she hires when she has a project. So, so we did, we were doing documentaries when I lived in North Carolina, um, starting around 2004, I guess, 2005. And that's, that's cool. What, yeah, I, any of those stick together. out to you? Yeah, the first, well, we did, I mean, the, the first one where I felt like I was really happy with the music I composed was um, called The Guest Worker. And it's a documentary about um, work agriculture workers who are, who are on the, that federal um, program uh, coming from Mexico the, the to work H-1B on or pro, pro, yeah that mm. to work in North Carolina on produce farms and she's from the eastern part of North Carolina so her early 
her early work was focused on that, that part of the state and, and just like farming and how that things were shifting so much out of tobacco and, and also with just how the, the role that um, immigrants were playing, how that was develop, developing during that time. Um, so I, that was a, I really like that film. I think it's really well done, really compelling story um, about this one older gentleman in particular who, who was coming up to North Carolina from Mexico every, every season, basically, to just do backbreaking work to send his, some money back home. And uh, that was on that was a PBS film. And then we've done, yeah, you know, we've done a lot of stuff. She, she directed this show called A Chef's Life, which is a really popular show on oh, CBS. I watched that. That ran for like, Did you do like the six music seasons. For that? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome! I had had no yeah. idea. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I one of my buddies is a, a chef in town, and uh, we always watch documentaries and TV shows and stuff, and he showed me that. That's awesome. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've got a, a couple other projects that we've been working on the last few months, too. So, Cool. But Any, it's only, I would say, in the last, last like, four years where that, that kind of work has been enough for me to, you know, support myself. So it was always a side job or something I did just because I, I, I loved her work so much and I wanted to be part of it. Um, uh, I never really expected it to be something that like could be, yeah, sustainable source of income. Uh, and I'm knocking on wood right now mm-hmm. because things are things are so in the up in the airs in general in the world. So I don't take anything for granted. But. Yeah, I mean that's yeah that's awesome being able to being able to to make music as your your main gig. Uh, but yeah, I know, I yeah. know it's hard, especially for people that do like post filming stuff. I know, uh, we were, yeah. we were talking to, uh, Kira Rossler from Black Flag and she does, she works for HBO and does, uh, sound editing stuff for them. And she was saying, mm. she was like, after actors start going back on the lots and recording stuff, she was like, it might still be another six months to a year before anybody and the post-production game even starts to get jobs associated with those. Um, oh yeah. So I know that there's like, you know, just a huge kind of backlog of, of stuff that has to happen before movies keep getting finished, you know, or start getting finished again and stuff. So, yeah. So I sympathize with that. That's kind of yep. hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I always, uh, I would always joke that I, I bartended for a long time and, you know, just worked general service mm-hmm. industry jobs. And I was always like, if I live cheaply enough, no matter what happens, I can always quit my job and, uh, you know, bartend to make enough money to live off of. And then this summer <laughs> I lost my job and I was like, Oh man, <laughs> this is oh, the man. one time yeah. I can't fall back on, you know, making drinks for people. Uh, <laughs> right. But yeah. yeah. Not that I'm uh, complain. I I mean I've I found a new job and stuff, and I know a lot of people are a lot worse off than I am. So I'm not <laughs> I'm not really complaining. It's just funny because I was always like, you know, there's always bars. Somebody will always want you know a Manhattan or whatever. <laughs> and <All> right, <laughs> that turned out to be exactly wrong this year. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, 
So, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I'm only asking this because I was so off on a struggle, not a thought. Does balsams have mm-hmm. a lot of layers of <laughs> pedal steel on it? Or is that solo <laughs> yeah. pedal steel? <laughs> lots and lots of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll just I make mean, sure I wasn't going crazy. Tot- <laughs> yeah. Totally a studio like creation. Um, like I, it, it started with recording loot, like just playing um, into a really long looping, like tape looping uh, kind of process, mm-hmm. and then finding loops that I like the way they sound, and also like letting them loop for a long time so that they kind of degrade and mm-hmm. build up these resonances, and then um, start start building tracks around those loops. It's generally how that that music works. So then I'll you know then I'll add a bass line and you know layer more loops or um, or like more like lead parts on the pedal steel and there's quite a bit of synthesizer in there as well. Mm-hmm. I was wondering so that, about the bass. That, is is the bass a bass guitar or is mm-hmm. that like a Moog or something? It's a yeah, it's a synth. Um, it's like a yeah, like an analog mono synth. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. Have, have any more? Oh, what was it? It was like on that album. It was mostly a uh, Arturia microbrew. Cool. Do you which do you give it to somebody? Yeah. Or? Yeah, I, I had a at one time. I was I had a couple because I was I was trying to do music very live where I had the. I was playing with the synth and the pedal steel at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just was cumbersome because there's so much, there's like effects pedals. And I just realized like, if I'm going to try to play pedal steel in front of people, that's, I just have to, you know, stay focused on that. Mm-hmm. Keep my eyes on the road, so to speak. I uh, so. It's just like, it requires so much concentration. Yeah. that That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love that record. Uh, it it's very like a static at points, which I'm always into in music. Um, I mean, I guess that kind of goes back to like the the sort of like the humanness of a pedal steel. Like sometimes it sounds like just like mm-hmm. a bunch of people in like some sort of like religious ecstasy or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm projecting some image onto that, but <laughs> that's something I get out of it at least. Um, that's yeah that's interesting it does have a like especially when the there it's layered and when the when it's the loop sound of the instrument that sort of like starts to become a little a little murky sounding and more resonant like it it does sound very choral um for sure so mm-hmm. i i hear that too and it's you know it was kind of ha- a happy accident to realize that that sort of sound was kind of out of the instrument that's awesome. I, uh, I'm personally a big fan of black metal, um, which I know mm-hmm. instrumentation wise is completely different than what you do. But I think that there's something about really good black metal that is transcendent in the way that really good ambient or noise or drone or anything like that. Um, you know, anything, mm-hmm. anything that's kind of like longer compositions, less, you know, first chorus verse kind of thing uh that there's something about like the element of the added time 
that gives sort of like it, it adds to the experience. Like there's a difference between yeah. listening to the middle 30 seconds of a long black metal track or a long, you know, uh, ambient pedal steel track than listening to that same 30 seconds after you've listened to the previous seven minutes building up to that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely like something like, I, I think to be said for, for, maybe the, the entrancing qualities of like longer form music. Uh, and like I said, I, I just, i I find that that scratch gets itched for me a lot with very specific mm-hmm. black metal bands, but I always mm-hmm. find myself comparing that to more, I don't, I don't want to use the word new age. Uh, Cause I don't know if you use that term yourself. <laughs> and I know some people take it as mm-hmm. a, denigrating term which i definitely don't mean it but like that but just kind of like that general yeah. overarching um you know more modern more modern compositions more ambient kind of stuff um I yeah so, yeah it's, i mean i've drawn drawn to that effect i mean that that sort of I've all, i think i've always even and even in like when i was young playing in my first band like always wanted to like explore longer forms um, and, and repetition. And just because without, without much consciousness about it back then, I just, I just, it, it put me in a kind of state of mind that I like being in. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. So uh, I won't keep you too much longer. I know uh, it's a Friday night and I'm sure you've got stuff to do. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about the that um, record you just did with Golden Retriever this year? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I so um, I'm assuming that those are people you met out in California because if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure they're a Golden Retriever is a Golden State band. Um, they they're actually are, a Portland. They're based in Portland. But I did, I did meet them because of, yeah, being based out here and um, went on a West Coast tour, like right around the time Crows and Basilka came out, I, I went on a tour with an, another Bay Area guitarist named Danny Paul Grody, and we played a show in Portland with Golden Retriever, and um, I, I mean, I was familiar with their music before that, but seeing them play live and just... Yeah, um, kind of gradually getting to know them over the years over this kind of long distance yeah that's friendship um that yeah and um they approached me by doing a collaboration and i was i was just like really thrilled to be asked because i had a lot of respect for them and their music and um i liked where the kind of traject the trajectory they were on i thought was really interesting and I was, I was also really intrigued by the, like the, the challenge of trying to make our sound worlds uh, work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy with the results. Yeah. I think you did a really good job. It, it, yeah, you definitely like added a really cool component to, to what they were doing and it didn't sound like, it doesn't sound like two bands playing at the same time. You know what I mean? Like y'all, y'all mesh together well. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I don't know why I thought they were hey, a California yeah. band. I've, uh, you could tell we, uh, have very diligent note taking and I have a producer whispering in my ear this whole time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what's the, the Michael Rappaport has a uh, podcast and he's like, he's like, we don't uh, make corrections and we don't fact check anything we say. <laughs> That's yeah, basically me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I yeah. like if you, if you followed their music over the years and like, especially like, like, um, like around, yeah, like the 2000s and around 2010 era. There's just a whole time when this label Root Strata was active and based in, in San Francisco. You would see Golden Retriever playing here a lot. And because, and there was just this affiliation with Root Strata and um, a lot of artists who were here. So I could see how, like, you know, you could, you could think that they're, they might be based here. Um, <laughs> That's very generous sound, of you. Their sound is... <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. My, uh, my partner that I do this show with uh, has a band, and uh, they are not from Charleston, but everybody in the world thinks that they're Charleston. So at times they'll get written about oh, yeah. like on blogs and stuff like that, and they'll be like, Charleston-based band, blah, blah, blah. Oh, <laughs> you know? no. It's funny. <laughs> But yeah, so, that, so that's cool. So did y'all, uh, was that something that y'all worked <laughs> to use a, a corporate term here? Did y'all like telework on that or did y'all go into the studio and compose? We that? did. You telework. We did that? it via telepresence. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, and it was before COVID, but mm. it was, it just ended up being, you know, um, the approach that made the most sense for us because we could take our time with it um, rather than being under the kind of pressure that you're under when you're in the studio. And even though they often, you know, play and record together, they actually were working from their own separate studios as well. Those two guys, Matt and Jonathan. So it, it, it really was like three different silos, <laughs> you know, that would occasionally mm -hmm. send missives to, to each other. Um, and it was just like a really cool way to work. Um, they're like, they're, they're both, we, we, we kind of like shared duties when it, in terms of like production and, and mixing, you know, the tracks once we had all the parts together. And I felt like everyone just from through all stages of it, from composition and performing and recording the parts to the final production stages, like everyone really brought their own, you know, their own voice to the project. And I think it shows in the, in the end result. So it doesn't sound like a golden retriever record. It doesn't sound like a Chuck Johnson record. Um, it really is the same thing. Yeah. That, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I agree. I, when I listened to it the first time, I honestly, it wasn't readily apparent to me, which instruments you were playing, which I think, uh, is high praise for a collaboration like that. Like just cause everything, you know, meshed together so well. Um, yeah. Kind of a group sound. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the collaboration like over distancing is cool. I think you have, you know, obviously a little more time to digest what somebody's doing and kind of like come up with your, you know, your piece of the, of the sauce that you're going to add to it. Um, right. I remember, 
this is a, a completely different example, but I remember the killers made a record, not the killers, uh, the kills, um, made a record a while ago and they recorded all, I think on tape decks and they were living on the other side of the country. So they were literally having to wait until the other person shipped them a cassette tape to add to it. And you know, <laughs> like that. I, always, I always thought that was cool. Kind of like it better be good because yeah. the person's not going to hear it for a week, you know, <laughs> like That's right. <laughs> you, you can't send them something that you don't, you're not totally happy with, uh, you know. Well, Chuck, it has been super great talking to you today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. Yeah, yeah I, my pleasure. I, I, you know, I learned a lot about you. I, I've always appreciated your music, but it's it's really cool to hear about, you know, a lot of what was going on behind the scenes and uh, how you made it. And I, I think our, our listeners will be extremely interested in hearing it, too, so... So we Thanks, appreciate man. it. Yeah, I really appreciate Thanks for reaching out. And um, yeah, it's, it was good. It was good for me to think about what was going on behind the scenes too. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it's always good to like think about, think about history and stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I know personally for, sure. for me, this outlet of talking to people has been so nice, you know, during coronavirus and stuff. Uh, I didn't really, we try as a rule to talk as little as we can about COVID during interviews, you know, uh, but yeah. it's, it's just nice to like, you know, chat with somebody and, you know, the social aspect of it has been fun as well. So it was good to meet yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a whole, I mean, you know, life goes on <laughs> and then mm-hmm. most of our life, unless, you know, fortunate, most of us are fortunate enough to not have to really deal with COVID all day, you know, 24 seven. So mm-hmm. it's good to remember that things are really fucked up right now, but there's still like life goes on. And there's important things like music and uh, that's still going on as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, man, it's been awesome to talk to you. I, one thing before I forget, um, this is more a note to myself mm-hmm. while I'm editing this. Um, there's a Charleston guy that I sort of know that does a, a podcast and a uh, like newsletter. He's a, he's a journalist um, and he does like a weekly newsletter or something. And I know that he wrote something recently about ambient music and said something about one of your records. And I can't remember which record it was, um, but basically put it as like a recommended thing. So uh, I'll let oh, him cool. know that you, that you were on the show and uh Maybe if he does anything else with ambient stuff, uh, if it's cool with you, maybe I can throw throw him your email or something. If you ever want to, oh yeah, definitely. Because he he's I mean he's a great he's a great journalist. Uh, he wrote for Post and Courier for a long time, um, and some other stuff. And now he's just like a freelance uh, essayist. But he always has interesting stuff to say uh, about you know music and politics and architecture and stuff. So I I think y'all would probably get along and, um, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I had that, that Charleston connection already Mm -hmm. with my my family lives there. So yeah, Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. That, that, that's crazy (laughs) that, you know, uh, aunt Jane from Chapel Hill. Uh (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. Many generations of many generations of musicians, uh, and college radio DJs, no Jane. <laughs> I, I believe in, that in, in, institution there. Yeah, she's a she's a 
real cool personality. Yeah, she's awesome. Well, cool, Chuck. It was good talking to you. Well, uh, I'll keep in touch. You too. I'll, I'll let you know um, when we're getting closer to putting out the episode. I think our backlog is around six or seven right now. So I mm-hmm. think probably like a month to two months is probably a good estimate of when the episode will come out. Okay. Sounds good. But I'll, I'll keep you in the loop. Well, cool. I'll talk to you later. Right on. All right. Okay, Eddie. Thanks. See ya. Throw some tags on there. This has been a Comfort Monk production. <laughs> <laughs>